The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. is the Bill Press Show. Happy holidays from all of us here at the uh, Bill Press Show. Hope you are enjoying uh, the season uh, with your friends and family. Uh, And uh, we keep the good stuff coming for you with our holiday specials. Very special indeed today, where we wanted to talk about uh, the Trump White House. Uh, Just about two years now of the Trump White House. Uh, what have we learned? What uh, have we seen? And uh, what can we expect uh, in a very changing uh, dynamic here in Washington, D.C. Uh, in the next couple of years? And still with that cloud of the special counsel's investigation hanging over the Trump uh, administration. Um, to help us through, uh, Justin Sink covers the White House for Bloomberg News. Um, and... Um, as frequent guest on the show and was also happened to be on pool that day, the famous day now when uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer came to have a private behind closed doors meeting with the White <laughs> House about immigration. Hey, Justin, good to see you. Hey, great to see you. We'll find out more about uh, <clears throat> what that was like. Uh, and also from the Washingtonian uh, covering the White House and other things political here in Washington, D.C., Brittany Shepard joining us. Hi, Brittany. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, um, you know, routinely when you're on pool, the president's talking to some big leader, foreign leader, big shot in the United States, and you come in and take a couple of pictures, maybe try to get a question in, and then you are immediately herded out, right? It didn't happen that way for that meeting. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, uh, it was sort of a unprecedented and explosive exchange <laughs> between those two leaders and or three leaders, excuse me. And I, I think it was a couple of unique dynamics that Donald Trump is encountering for the first time, and and might help illustrate how the next two years are going to be completely different from the first two of the Trump administration. So. Uh, one, Donald Trump is not used to having to deal with Democrats to to get what he wants. Um, he's had Republican control of the House and the Senate. Uh, that's no longer going to be true with, right. with Democrats retaking the House. Uh, and while he's always needed Democratic votes, he's primarily allowed um, Republican leaders, Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan, up on Capitol Hill to do the negotiating for him. That's that's sort of less viable now. This meeting was a recognition of of that, and um, I think it it showed that when Trump stakes out these sort of concrete positions, it makes his sort of desire to be a negotiator uh, tougher. And and so we saw the, the the fireworks that that sort of came from that. The other sort of interesting moment, and and the. The time where it really started to go off the rails was Nancy Pelosi was talking about the shutdown, and she opened by saying, you know, I think we want to come together in a bipartisan way. And, and avoid a Trump shutdown. And that was what sort of 
blew the president's mind. You could see him sort of physically recoil in his seat and say, wait, what? Like, what just happened? And what had happened was she had done to him what he has done so effectively over his sort of three-year political career, which is I'm just going to throw out a sort of branding exercise and Mm -hmm. put everybody back on their heels where they're now sort of reacting to this phrase and have them sort of deal with it. And you could see the president sort of laugh. He turned to Vice President Pence at one point. Did she just say Trump shut down? And you could see the wheels just start spinning and that's when he decided that he was going to sort of adopt a more aggressive posture and and get into an argument with democrats and as it got back and forth what you saw was nancy pelosi and chuck schumer got what they wanted which was the president to say you know i accept full responsibility for a shutdown at the same time i think donald trump supporters at least are, are making the argument that a shutdown is a political advantage for him. You know, it's something where he can say, uh, I am so focused on border security that I'm willing to take extreme measures. And, you know, their case of the midterm elections was that this is something that's going to motivate his base. We saw that didn't necessarily work out, but Republicans also didn't suffer the sort of catastrophic losses that some had predicted. So Uh, looking back on that, I haven't seen or didn't see at the time anybody talk about um, the other people who were in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever have a chance? I'm sure you were so focused on Donald Trump <laughs> and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, but did you ever? Did you have a chance to cast a glance at like John Kelly? Yeah, was in the room. <laughs> it was funny on or, the way out. Or Bill Shine or any yeah, of those people. I mean, Jared. Jared was there yeah, too. Yeah, it was funny on the way out. Uh, I think I and a couple reporters were just looking at each other like, "Whoa, that was something that we've you know I've." been there for yeah two presidents at this point and seen a lot of oval office sprays never seen something like that so i think a couple of us were just like wow that was that mm-hmm. was remarkable was different yeah. <laughs> different and uh john kelly kind of had a smirk on his face and he's like well if i don't see you guys <laughs> merry christmas <laughs> there's this iconic photo that's going around twitter now of mike pence looking just completely petrified like he's oh. un- someone unplugged him well that was the other thing Brittany, is that mike pence just sat there. Yeah. It was like he was a non-factor and there's all this rhetoric around, is he even a factor in his own presidency, in you know, in his own cabinet, uh-huh. you know, with next to Donald Trump. So it was such an, an obvious point to look at him now. He can't even say yeah. anything. We actually have some audio of, uh, of Mike Pence's uh, one contribution to the to that to that uh, famous uh, meeting. I mean, uh, we were kept waiting at the time you know, for Mike Pence to speak up and have something to say. And uh uh, and he finally did. Uh, well, here, here's his contribution. <laughs> it's, <laughs> crickets. <laughs> it's interesting that y- you were focusing on Pence, because mm-hmm. there's a real question as we sort of head into the new year and as the 2020 presidential race really heats up about the role Mike Pence is going to play uh, in that campaign. Obviously, he was seen as sort of a steadying force and an olive branch to evangelicals uh, in the first presidential election. But what we have seen more recently is reporting that suggests that the president is reevaluating what he brings to the ticket, thinking that, you know, after a couple contentious Supreme Court fights, that he's sort of locked up the evangelical base and that he doesn't necessarily need Mike Pence for that anymore. And you can tell, I mean, it's it's blatantly obvious that they don't share 
personal styles. Mm-hmm. Mike Pence is mm. a button-down conservative guy. Donald Trump is yeah. anything but. And, uh, you know, you'll see the president needle the vice president <laughs> at different events, kind of make fun of him, and, and it, it betrays that sort of difference. And so, uh, you know, after this this sort of famous meeting, Pence loyally went up to Capitol Hill and, and rallied Senate Republicans by saying that this was the president sort of standing up for uh, his priorities. But and by all sort of reports and accounts has been sort of a loyal defender of, of Donald Trump publicly um, throughout the presidency. But I think there's an interesting dynamic at play where Donald Trump might look at a, a meeting like that or or this sort of situations that have unfolded and say, I'm going to have a tough re-election battle. Is there somebody else that brings a new element that I want to bring mm-hmm. into the table? Nikki Haley is somebody that's uh, leaving her post at the UN and obviously is uh, would sort of inject a new dynamic into the race. And so I, I don't know. I think that's just an interesting thing to watch over the next few months and years. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And they present such a foil to Obama and Biden, who are seen kind of like as these buddy cop president and vice president. So their dynamic or lack thereof has always been really interesting to me. And seeing how that evolves or devolves will definitely be a top priority. Well, I'll say one thing. Uh, if that had been Obama-Biden, I mean, first of all, it would, would not have happened that way. Mm-hmm. But certainly one difference would be that Joe Biden would not have sat there without saying a word. <laughs> Definitely is remarkable. I think that's a fair, fair bet. <laughs> yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, for, yeah. I think he would have and, enjoyed arguing some of the parliamentary oh, uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> points. No, with absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, what do we know about – is that the way it always is um, with Mike Pence in meetings or is he ever – does he ever have a voice in these meetings? Is, is he? Is he? A, does Donald Trump? Did Donald Trump in the first few years ever like turn to Mike Pence and say, "What do you think, Mike?" I, I think there have been occasions in that uh, the vice president has been given certain policy portfolios, uh, particularly on sort of. Uh, Religious liberty questions mm-hmm. on uh, space too, National Space Council. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other sort of interesting role that Mike Pence often plays for the president is he'll go to a country first. He'll scout mm-hmm. it out. He'll meet with the the foreign leaders ahead of a big summit with Japan, China. Um, it, it, he'll go to ASEAN. He'll he he will do the sort of ground level travel. And I, I think that one thing that the White House the White House officials have said is that the president really appreciates that. Vice President Pence can give him a sort of sense of what the dynamics are before he goes into what can often be high stakes negotiations. And as you're seeing um, with with the sort of ongoing trade dispute, this is something that uh, the president really values the the interpersonal sort of exchanges with with foreign leaders and wants to gather gather intelligence about that, especially if it's delivered to him personally rather than, you know, sort of pouring through a briefing book. So, Brittany, one to, one to certainly uh, take away from that um, that meeting, we don't spend all of our time on that meeting, but it was um, so wild by Washington, even by Washington standards, mm-hmm. um, that it's worth exploring a little more is it, this was the first time that Donald Trump really got any pushback. Absolutely, at least from leaderships in, um, in in the Oval Office. Right, and leadership in the Congress, right? Mm-hmm. 
uh, which is sort of a window into what it's going to be like from now on, right? It's going to be absolutely it's a different. It's a completely different, different ball game. Yeah. yeah. And what I really found interesting is that during the first two years of his presidency, he wasn't being opposed by Congress, right? So a lot of attacks were being focused on the press. Of course, you would hear, you know, nicknames about Chuck and Nancy on Twitter, but it, it wasn't like what we saw earlier on this week. But now it seems that there's a shift and that what's going to happen in the next year or in the next two years is that he may be so focused on attacking Democrats in the House that we might see a bit of a shift in the rhetoric towards individual reporters. <laughs> I'm not saying that he's going to be any lighter on the press um, overall or, or at rallies, but I thought it was one of the first times you didn't hear him knock the press because he was so focused on punching back to Chuck and Nancy. Right. It might I, be a good distraction. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, this is a really interesting sort of game theory way to think about the next two years mm -hmm. is obviously... If you're a Democratic voter, you're excited that Democrats have seized a lever of power in the House, that they're going to be able to protect crucial po policy priorities. There's no sort of discount in that. But as you're looking at 2020, uh, you've created a really convenient political foil for, for President Trump. And House Democrats are going to have to very sort of cautiously navigate um, a lot of people's enthusiasm and an interest in pushing forward with uh, the investigations into the administration, mm -hmm. with uh, what's going on with Russia, what's going on with the payments to women. Uh, you know, all these issues continue to sort of fester, and there's a lot of um, energy on the left to, to sort of pounce on those and to also stand up to Donald Trump right. and, and to, to stake out um, hard positions. At the same time, you don't want to give the president ammunition to uh, to the extent that you can keep him from doing it, which <laughs> might be a fool's <laughs> errand uh, to, to begin with. But to sort of motivate uh, the voters in the middle and sort of a little bit to the right that, that you would need to unseat an incumbent president in a, a re-election campaign. And I know that this is something that Nancy Pelosi has been thinking about and that you're going to see as uh, Democrats sort of navigate this new reality. But it is, it, it's going to be a, certainly a big challenge for Donald Trump, who's never lived through this sort of thing before. It's going to be uh, also a challenge for Democrats, though, to Nancy Pelosi's credit, she did this in the last two years of, of George W. Bush's administration, mm -hmm. where she f found places to work with the White House, mm -hmm. while still obviously, uh, particularly with the Iraq war, kind of mounting a loyal yeah. opposition. But yeah. it certainly is a, a different ball game than mm -hmm. many points that you were making. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a completely different song and dance. Right. Um, looking through these, back these first couple of years, uh, there were so many hi uh, high points, but right toward the end, um, we had this situation with uh, Jamal Khashoggi, whom Time Magazine made, among other journalists, man of the year. Um, and, and yet Donald Trump still uh, has not condemned um, what Saudi Arabia did or particularly or the role of the leader of Saudi Arabia, the acting leader, at least, Mohammed bin Salman, even though the CIA concluded that he ordered, directed, ordered the killing mm -hmm. of Jamal Khashoggi. And Donald Trump still, if we were asked him today, he said it so many times, 
Uh, we don't like what happened, but uh, Saudi Arabia is a very important ally, and we have to stick with them. Um, what does that do, Justin, for in terms of <laughs> our standing in the world? What do we stand for? I mean, other countries seemed a lot more alarmed. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, there's a... There, there's a long history of the U.S. sort of selectively applying um, human rights uh, goals or uh, issues. I mean, mm-hmm. you can go back to essentially all, every presidency and mm-hmm. well, the old thing used to be, Bill, but yeah, he's a dictator, but he, you know, but he's our dictator, or he's mm-hmm. right, exactly. And so, you know, on the one hand, you can see this as a continuation. On the other. Obviously, as uh, you know, a journalist, it's it's devastating to see um, a, a situation like this and not sort of more serious repercussions. Um, I think that what the argument that the the president and his aides have sort of made is that you know the the economic benefits of maintaining mm-hmm. a good relationship with Saudi Arabia are. Uh, worth not, you know, sort of upending the apple cart. And uh, they'll point to things like oil prices specifically, uh, staying lower than than they could be. Arms sales, too. Arms sales, uh, providing jobs. And, you know, that's a calculus that I think voters are going to look at and decide what do they care about more. Um, uh, but you are certainly right that... that this is the latest in a series of actions that have been undertaken by Saudi Arabia, Yemen, um, right. other human rights uh, issues where some of our traditional allies, Canada specifically, UK, France, have looked to the US to say, hey, back us. we're going to take a stand here, back us up. And the Trump administration has shied away from that. So while I, I guess I don't see um, our sort of selective application of human rights to be you know, shockingly mm-hmm. new. Mm-hmm. What does seem to be potentially different, or or to have real long term consequences, aside of aside from I think the intimidation of journalists that that's a serious issue in and of itself, is that it, it's further fraying those relationships with with traditional allies. And the question that people are going to come back to is: Do we need the UK at some point? Do we need Canada at some mm-hmm. point? Do we need France at some point? Do we are we do we feel confident they're going to have our backs or is this accumulation of snubs going to to impact U.S. foreign policy? And Brittany, after the midterms came this vote in the Senate on the war in Yemen, where I think the vote was 62 to 37 or something like that. Mm -hmm. The Senate really split with Donald Trump over continued funding of the Saudi war, Saudi Mm -hmm. Arabia war against the the rebels in, in Yemen which showed, I mean, maybe a couple of things that that um, Republicans found that Donald Trump was not such a valuable uh, a partner in the midterms. Uh, some states, yes, but not across the board. And um, that this was their way of sort of saying, we don't like what you're doing with uh, Saudi Arabia and Khashoggi mm-hmm. on, uh, and MBS on Khashoggi, right? Oh, so yeah. Republican senators willing to split with the president. Yeah, and... I, I think it shows that there is some kind of precedent for standing up 
for for themselves and like trying to have a backbone against a president when Republicans for the last two years have been saying mm-hmm. that they've been spineless and that Paul Ryan has not been an effective leader and that they're not there are really no more rights in the Republican Party. And obviously that's an ongoing conversation for what the morality of the Republican Party is here in Washington, D.C. But to me, I'm curious to see if Republicans will continue to step out of line with the president for policies going into 2019. The other issue that you mentioned is, and that some people have raised with the Saudis, is that maybe while Donald Trump talks about the um, weapon sales and those issues, that there's another issue he doesn't talk about, which is his own financial ties to Saudi Arabia, which go way, way, way back. yeah, and, and, and there's been a we lot of questions. We haven't seen the tax returns. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but there's been a lot of questions also about uh, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who uh, yes. ha- has developed a, a close relationship with the crown prince in Saudi Arabia at the same time that his company has been uh, seeking investment from uh, from the Saudi mm-hmm. sort of investment fund. And uh, I think that that is potentially uh, an area where Democrats empowered with subpoena power from taking control of the House are going to be looking very closely. And that, you know, Jared is going to have to face questions. I mean, there's been a lot of reporting. uh, I think the New York Times had some of the best of it in terms of the text message or WhatsApp exchanges that he and the crown prince continued to have not only before, but during or after the, the Khashoggi murder and I think that all of these questions are going to continue to create political headaches for the White House uh, going forward. At the same time, of course, you know, the president and his defenders would say, hey, yeah, cultivating a close relationship with the leader of a, an important ally has paid significant dividends for us and has been crucial in developing Jared's peace plan, which should come out sometime early next year. And so, uh, you know, again, it's the those weights and measures of... Uh, interesting. You remind me, um, uh, Peter, if we have that, but um, that Jared Kushner gives very, very few interviews. Yes. But he he did agree to appear, of course, on Fox News, of course, with Sean Hannity, and Hannity did ask him uh, on point uh, a question about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And uh, so it's interesting, Kushner's, Kushner's response... I think our intelligence agencies are making their assessments, and we're hoping to make sure that there's justice brought where that should be. Now, the intelligence agencies, so this was maybe mid-December he said that. The intelligence agencies, a month before that, had already said, yeah, Uh, he was killed by the Saudis, and and, and MBS, the Mohammed bin Salman, gave the orders. And, and, And they have all these intercepts of him communicating with the team that was in Istanbul doing it. But um, Kushner doesn't mention his buddy, MBS, at all. Yeah. I mean, one of uh, one of the things you might be able to give President Trump credit for is that unlike the, this, which was a sort of typical politician way of skirting around or avoiding a question that you didn't want to answer, President Trump's explicit about it. He's, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. he says, he "Listen, should. guys, we're do, we're doing this because Saudi is a key yeah. ally. Yeah. They gave me a big arms deal. Yeah. They're keeping oil prices low, and so, that yeah, that's re- important." Read a statement. It was like in plain English, like a guy talking to you at a bar. He's well, yeah. maybe he knew, and maybe he didn't. I don't know. With an exclamation point. But we got to yeah. continue to be friends with them because uh, boom, boom, yeah, boom, boom, exactly. boom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. 
Now, there is this other cloud over the uh, – so there's a, as we've discussed, it's going to be a lot different in the next couple of years, assuming Donald Trump lasts the next couple of years. Um, but one thing's going to be hanging over is it's not just the Democrats in Congress. You've got this Robert Mueller investigation mm-hmm. that Brittany has not gone away. And uh, what we saw in uh, December with Michael Flynn and Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort just seems to be have a full head of steam. Absolutely. And it's, you know, Robert Mueller is releasing what he can. Um, and then the president tweets that, you know, I believe it was like, this clears the president. He spoke of himself in the third person, not even realizing that Michael Cohen said individual one no less than 30 times, I believe, in the most recent uh, Mueller filing. And it seems like many things are looming in 2018. Shutdowns are looming. Mueller is looming. Uh, all of those things, except for Mueller, seems temporary. It, it it seems that this will really be a thorn in the president's side in a major way, and that it will really upset you know aides and the president in it's something that he really can't escape. He can try to run away from all the other things, but when it comes to Mueller, he really can't unless he tries to fire Mueller, which is a a, a whole another mess. But it's definitely possible. I think we've moved beyond the firing of yeah. Robert Mueller. Um, maybe not. Of course, he still could. Well, not directly. He has to fire right. the attorney general. Would have to fire him. And hey, and, and I think the real the, the real sort of question is at this point: um, is there going to be a, a shocking new development out of this investigation that would directly tie uh, the president mm-hmm. to uh, Russian interference in the election? Because I, I mean, if you that that seems to be the standard upon right. which. Mm-hmm. Republicans are holding themselves and Republicans are the uh, and specifically Senate Republicans are the essential right thing here because otherwise we're just kind of uh you know spitting into the wind there's there's no there's no ball game unless Republicans are ready to impeach him so or if the Mo- convict him in the Senate right, yeah, right if the if the Mueller investigation turns up that I think obviously it would be a shocking political development. And then the second question is, will the revelations that continue to trickle out be a, an actual political hindrance for, for President Trump? And what's been remarkable is, you know, we've seen his national security advisor go down. We've seen his personal lawyer go down. We've seen his campaign, campaign chairman go down. I, I mean, at a certain point, you can't get any closer to the president other than the president himself. But the Trump base has sort of remained in his pocket. Now, if the presidential election in 2020 plays out like the midterm elections did last year, which was Democrats were really motivated, but Republicans sort of held their their ground, the the base didn't abandon President Trump. The path to re-election for the president is very narrow, but the path to defeating an incumbent is also really narrow for mm-hmm. for Democrats. And to but, the extent that this investigation but, matters, it's really just about how it would impact who's going to be president. But of course, it. at the same time that there's the Robert Mueller investigation, there's the U.S. Attorney's investigation in New York, mm-hmm. uh, specifically focused on on the uh, Michael Cohen. Uh, there's also the New York Attorney General's investigation of the Trump Foundation. But back to the U.S. Attorney, the U.S. Attorney has said, Michael, not only did Michael Cohen break the law by two illegal payments, but that individual one, namely Donald Trump, 
ordered, directed, approved those payments himself so that, I mean. And and if individual one was not president of the United States, he would be in some serious trouble. Then it calls calls into question, like, can you indict a sitting president? And then there's all this rhetoric around, well, what happens next? If he were not president, if that individual one were not president, he would be indicted for those charges. So he is an. He's a Nixon. He's an unindicted co-conspirator. And right. Well, I mean, the real question is how this this plays out. Right. Uh, you yeah. know, we haven't entirely sort of tested the, the criminal limits of this, although by tradition, presidents can't be uh, indicted for crimes while they're in office. And so it, it, w- it will be a new sort of reality. But I, again, it's just it's tough for me. I mean, it. I I am consistently sort of amazed by what comes out from these court filings. At the same time, I'm I sort I, of I I am waiting to see if or when the sort of fever breaks and and somebody yeah. says, "Okay, this is the thing that is too far." And so far, you know, the people who matter, which are those Senate yeah. Republicans that you're going to need, just haven't haven't done it. And it was in response to that where the court said individual one, namely the president of the United States, is the one who ordered all of this, that Donald Trump came out and said, totally clears the president. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah, th- there was the thank you in that tweet that really, <laughs> really got me. The time That was the classic case of, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how, do you do, how did you like it? <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, you're... <laughs> The, the U.S. attorney says you broke the law twice. And we are talking about campaign finance violations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, is- it's important, I guess, to say that a contention that the White House has made is, first, Trump doesn't believe that they're campaign finance donations. Secondly, he would make the argument that um, it's his lawyer's job to keep it legal. And mm-hmm. the, the U.S. attorney said that Trump... Uh, ordered Cohen to do something illegal. They did not explicitly make the connection that that, that order itself was illegal. Um, and yeah. the the argument that the White House would make is that Cohen was a lawyer and uh, he should have been able to use his legal training to say, this is what I can do legally and this is what I, I can't do legally and that it's not the president's fault. And then the third sort of argument that that the White House would make, and again, I'm not endorsing any of these, I'm just sort of laying out their their reasoning, is that ultimately campaign violations are, are sort of civil rather than criminal violations, that it's yeah, right. uh, something that happens routinely in presidential campaigns. This particular type, I think, <laughs> maybe not, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but you know, President ordinary. Obama's re-election campaign had civil violations because they failed to yeah, file some paperwork but or as whatever. But as I was pointed you know, it's, out, it's a, the dif- it's a difference between a campaign contribution made to cover up two alleged affairs. Yes, uh, there's, there's a substantial pre- difference. Between, to help his yeah. campaign and then also to cover it up for a year and a half yep. and do everything they could to make sure that nobody found out about it and then finally, finally busted on it. I guess the um, summing up, it's going to be, uh, in many ways, very different coming ahead and looking ahead into the uh, <laughs> into the next two years. At the same time, with Donald Trump there, he's not going to change. Right? <laughs> it's always the same. <laughs> <laughs> right, so uh, there we go. Brittany Shepard from the Washingtonian at Washingtonian.com and uh, Bloomberg.com. Yep. Right. Bloomberg.com. 
Justin Sink, uh, both of you. Thank you so much. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Christmas. Uh, and I hope you, again, enjoy uh, your holiday season. And we'll be back with more special programming here on The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show. We are not live. We are on tape. We're taking the week off for the holiday and hope that you get some time off as well. But don't worry. We are leaving you with lots of new content uh, to absorb while we are on vacation. But we'll be back just after the beginning of the new year. I'm so excited. I wanted to make this happen for a really, really, really long time because I, of course, do the Bill Press show. I I write about food every now and then. I don't write about it as much as I used to, but I I, I, I like restaurant, the restaurant business. I like restaurant news. I like to absorb all things food culture. And so this morning, I am lucky enough to talk with two of my favorite people in town. Like you, I, I love all the food writers in town, but you two are my favorite. I'll just put it out there. Thanks, man. Uh, <laughs> it's Laura Hayes from the Washington City Paper and Jessica Sidman from Washingtonian Magazine. Ladies, thank you for joining me. Hi, thanks for having us. Good morning. Okay, so let's let's start first of all uh, with some unpleasant news because this year has been a year that we've looked a lot at. Uh, Me Too allegations, specifically regarding the restaurant industry. Um, We've seen some very, very big names uh, lose entire empires uh, over, rightfully so, I should obviously point out. Uh, Mario Batali was everywhere, and now he is nowhere. Uh, There have been multiple, I mean, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. you know, John Bash is another name that I think of from Louisiana, but right here in Washington, D.C., we have our own uh, scandal involving the Me Too movement with Mike Isabella. Uh, for those of you who are not in the Washington, D.C. area, you have saw him on Top Chef. Uh, he branched outside of the Washington, D.C. area uh, with a couple of different restaurants, but there was uh, uh, there were some allegations of uh, uh, him misbehaving and acting very inappropriately. Uh, in his restaurants to his uh, employees, which resulted in, which we saw near the end of the year, a complete loss of his restaurant empire. Uh, let's start, let's talk first of all. We all know the allegations. We've talked about him here on the show before. Um, how big his empire actually was? Well, he had at least a dozen restaurants. He had airport kiosks, stadium deals. He had an entire food hall under his name, uh, 41,000 square feet, $40 million. Uh, huge. Yeah, yeah, huge, huge um, imprint on the D.C. area. You know, he was at every event, every fundraiser. Everyone knew his name. He was kind of the go-to celebrity chef in D.C. besides Jose Andres. Yeah, who is, who who is, in, fact, under. Who is in fact very, very good. Uh, <laughs> like to counteract the bad stuff we're going to talk about, Jose Andres seems to be pretty perfect. Right. Um, but, you know, the, it was hard to go anywhere in D.C. without saying Mike Isabella's name. Whether, like, as you mentioned, at the stadium, uh, at airports, at all of this stuff. And so then these allegations come out and ha- he sort of fought them, right? 
Yeah, this is the part that drives me crazy is I think that we could be having a totally different conversation right now. Um, after the allegations came out, if he settled quickly, if he publicly apologized with immediacy, um, if he told the world he was going to rehab for six months um, and came back and, you know, said he was going to commit X number of dollars to changing his work culture, bringing in experts. Um, I don't know if he would have deserved to come back, but he certainly would have had a shot at one, I think. Um, but instead, he just... Um, Kind of denied and denied until he did that one segment on Fox um, 5 News here. Um, but, yeah, I think that this could have been an entirely different situation if he handled it differently. Um, Jessica's reported on how there was more things going on behind the scenes than just um, the sexual harassment allegations yeah. about the, the rapid um, growth. But it's just the way that he handled it was just severely disappointing I, I think the rapid growth was definitely a big part of it uh with, with the downfall right i mean when you spread yourself that thin and you put yourself out there so much it doesn't take much to just send the whole thing crumbling down not to mention like a sexual harassment scandal which is very serious i mean that just brought his complete i mean so what is the future? Because it was, again, towards the end of the year, we saw that these restaurants are are done. Mike Isabella's restaurant group is right. no more. Well, so he filed for chapter, his company filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy, which is basically liquidation. Yeah. Unlike, initially, he filed for Chapter 11, where you try to reorganize and come out um, stronger at the end. Uh, but, yeah, he, you know all of these restaurants i think the the one thing that may happen here though is he has these other business partners george and nick pagonis yeah who were also accused of sexual harassment i was going to say they were mentioned they in were this, yeah but that you know much lower profile names uh and so i think they haven't gotten as much um of the attention but they are angling to maybe pick up some of these restaurants and operate them under their own names going forward. You know, we'll see if it happens or not. Yeah, that's you know. You know, as you as you mentioned, Mike Isabella came out of Jose Andres Kitchens. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been a lot of people who have come out of Mike Isabella Kitchens. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to wonder about what lessons they learned while working in those kitchens. That's true. What's actually surprised me and, and been pretty telling is that kind of none of none of those folks really kind of came out to bat for him. Uh, like Marjorie McBradley um, and, and uh, Mike were pretty close and she had a great year. She opened St. Anselm and she's crushing it over there. And she was, I think, strategically very quiet, um, as were some of the other people that were kind of in his close circle. Um, everyone kind of just distanced themselves. But uh, yeah, in terms of just what it was like working under him, um, that's like the scary part because, you know, what lessons did these these folks learn? And um, as far as the Me Too movement, you just hope that um, some of this, these younger crop of chefs that are coming up yeah. um, are kind of breaking the mold, uh, breaking the circle, I guess is what I meant to say, um, so that they can instill different values in their um, employees and kind of it, it restarts the whole cycle. It, it is going to be very interesting because I think a lot of legitimate businesses had to uh, put things in place to address these these types of terrible behaviors by men in the workplace. And, you know, I used to work in restaurants. You've covered them for a long time. 
you know that the restaurant industry breeds terrible behavior. Yeah, and, and the thing about it is it wasn't even really much of a secret. No, It was something no. that's been glorified in TV shows and movies and pop culture, you know, the screaming chef. And now all of a sudden people are realizing, oh, wait, actually that's not okay. Yeah. And there's an entire generation of people who worked in kitchens who for whom that was acceptable or encouraged and, you know, we're in a whole new world now where that's no longer the case. Yeah. You know, it, I, I when we talk about this, I think a lot about uh, Anthony Bourdain, mm -hmm. who wrote and sort of glamorized and glorified that sort of pirate lifestyle of working in the kitchen. And in his first, you know, couple of books, he wrote about it as if it was really like, especially the womanizing part of it was just part of the industry. Now, to his credit, before his passing, he he came around on a lot of these issues and really supported a lot of women in the restaurant industry and, and even called himself a feminist there towards the very end. But, you know, we did, as a culture, glamorize uh, how women are treated when it comes to the restaurant business. Yeah, and the one thing we're not mentioning here is that you can't divorce this from the substance abuse that runs rampant in restaurants, right? That, yes. that is like the the like spark that's lighting this fire um, continuously. And, you know, Anthony Bourdain wrote about it in Kitchen Confidential and that it's just so, such a part of this culture. And um, it's been interesting to watch because like drinking, I think, is still the number one thing. Um, some restaurants still, you know, include a shift drink, um, a yep. drink right when you get off work as part of your kind of benefits as, as measly as they probably are other than that. Um, but it's been interesting to watch as like Top Chef became a show and the Food Network came about um, and just these chefs have become much more um, like celebrities than the, the guys that were kind of tucked back in the corner that you didn't know much about. And so the kinds of drugs and they're using has changed, I yeah. think. Um, it's, you know, no one's doing cocaine on the line. Uh, back there where they're in this open kitchen because every right, right, if yeah. you don't have an open kitchen these days, just quit. Very hot right now. So it's interesting, <laughs> the turning to like more dangerous drugs that you do in private and um but it's it's the drinking that I think again fuels this whole thing. So I, I actually I'm glad you mentioned that because this is where I wanted to go next. Um I I don't get out to a, a ton of industry events. I, I every now and then uh, I'll get out to some, right? I used to do a few more. But I uh, have gone to some of these food industry things a couple times where Mike Isabella was there. And every single time that I was there, he was stuttering drunk. Just absolutely, completely hammered. And this is a theme that a lot of these, you know, terrible men bring up when they're facing these allegations is I was drinking a lot or I was doing drugs and I was like, I'm not responsible for my behavior, which is a total cop out. But also at the same time in the restaurant industry, you're surrounded by this stuff. I mean, it's very hard to get away from this stuff. Right. So what sort of I mean, I don't want to say that that is the fuel to to your terrible but to a man's terrible behavior. But it is a factor. Right. Right. And, and he has admitted uh, that, you know, he is an alcoholic. He's been drinking his entire life since he was a teenager um you know he told us he'd pretty much <laughs> gone cold turkey so <laughs> you know that's a, you know I, I mean alcoholism also is a disease it's sure. not it's you know it's difficult 
Um, so I don't want to, you know, belittle that aspect totally. of it. No, I don't either. I, I, I think it's a va- I mean, I, I think it's a legitimate part of the conversation that we should be having. Hundred percent. But and you also have to keep in mind that yeah, at some point this guy went from being a chef to a like basically a CEO of a major company right. with thousands and thousands of employees. Um, and that's what happens with a lot of these chefs. You, you Sometimes your talent is in the kitchen and sometimes your talent is business. And a very few of them does that Venn diagram kind of overlap. So th- well, that's that, I, you're, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, the days of running a really good restaurant and just getting in there and hustling on the line, I mean, like those days for a lot of people are over. You want to run several restaurants. Uh, the thing that that was most illuminating to me came out of the John Besh story where there was a woman who was being sexually harassed um, in his restaurants uh, under his eye. And someone asked her, you know, did you ever tell anybody? And she said, we didn't have an HR department. We had nobody to tell. There was nobody to tell. And it's sort of to watch the restaurant industry sort of, turning into an adult <laughs> and realize that like you can't just wing it if you're gonna be a big empire as you said there were multiple mike isabella restaurants right. you have to factor in all the stuff that like you know an actual business has to factor in and they and his company didn't have an hr up until last fall at which point the company was about to you know have almost yeah. a thousand employees so um but you know, it's fairly it's common, just an indi- right? Yeah, no, it's an yeah. industry where there's just not that HR isn't usually a part of the restaurant, you yeah. know. And I I get it. Like I know sure. I've done a lot of reporting this year about um, the slim profit margins in restaurants. Bon Thai, my favorite Thai restaurant, makes seventy one cents off of its best dish, for example. So there's that. <laughs> these are these are micro businesses, right? Um, and they're I mean every single dollar um, usually goes to labor, so it's just not feasible for a lot of these small businesses, but like at a certain point, um, you know, there's things that can be outsourced, you know, I just, and Mm -hmm. if you want to survive, like maybe this is something you want to prioritize. I actually, this is a little bit of a tangent and we'll kind of get back to this a little bit later on, but uh, about the, the me too stuff, but uh, about the profits, Mm -hmm. uh, I think there are a lot of people that think you open up a restaurant, you've made it. You're like, (laughs) you're like rolling in the money, right? It is not the case. No. It is not the case. So, so, I mean, obviously I know that there's a difference between, you know, someone who's running one restaurant and someone like Mike Isabella that has multiple different restaurants. But how, how is it that uh, these smaller restaurants make it in a place like D.C.? What is it that gets them by? Magic. <laughs> there you go. If you're, thinking about, if you're thinking about starting your own restaurant, folks. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's really it's not what people think it is. Yeah, I mean, there's so many factors that go into it. Do you have um, a smart lease deal in an area where you're going to be able to get traffic? Do you have a team, a good team? Do you you know are you good at um, you know, sourcing and pricing and all of this other stuff that actually has nothing to do with food at all. Right. It's not about can you cook? Yeah. I mean, not to say that that, that's not important. You (laughs) know, if you have great food, you'll bring in a lot of people. Sure. But sometimes restaurants that you think are very successful because their food is, you know, well-acclaimed 
aren't run very well as businesses and ultimately fail. Yeah. And the biggest problem, and this is staffing, and I think this factors into all of that, and, and this that's been one of the biggest stories this year is there's just no staff. Um, and so I think, yeah, these restaurants are going to have to spread themselves even more thin and offer better benefits. Um, most restaurant workers I interviewed this year do not have health insurance. Yeah. Um, and so... I mean, that all these things, uh, restaurants are being asked to kind of k- pick up their game and, and start acting like regular businesses. And um, I think that's why, you know, towards the end of 2018, we're seeing more closures than we're seeing openings. It's been a little bit of a bloodbath. And um, I just, yeah, there's they're being pulled in lots of different directions. It is certainly not a money bin. Um, yeah. yeah. On the economics of the restaurant business, uh, this is something that we've seen around the country. But here in Washington, D.C., we had Initiative 77. Um, which would raise the uh, uh, wages for um, uh, uh, waiters and waitresses to where they would get paid a set income. They won't have to rely on their tips anymore. Um, t- tell us, a, get us up to speed a little bit about the history of this. <laughs> sure, this has been my whole life since April. It's, I mean, it's uh, crazy. Ask me anything. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, good, 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 good. All right. Um, this is it's been utterly fascinating and and frustrating and illuminating and and so many things. Um, I'll try to do the cliff notes. So basically, a uh, New York based group called Restaurant Opportunity Center United um, got a ballot initiative on the June primary. Um, which, as you said, its goal was to kind of eliminate this tip credit system where um, restaurant owners basically ask customers to subsidize their labor um, by make by paying the lion's share of workers' wages uh, with their tips. And um, the if, if 77 had taken an effect, it would have um, increased the tip minimum wage, which is currently $3.89, in eight increments up to $15 in 2025. From then on, everyone would be paid um, the $15 directly from their employer. Um, What I think the most confusing part of this that everyone kind of got tripped up on is um, tip workers are already required to receive the minimum wage. Um, So if tips do not carry a worker um, over that $15 mark, or right now, excuse me, it's $13.25, then the employer is on the hook for the difference. Um, the main argument is that the systems kind of create some gray areas and it opens people up to um, greater wage theft. Um, so uh, the voters um, said, yeah, we want this. Um, I, I believe it was like a 50 to 40 um, vote. Um, it, was a, it was a convincing win. It was a convincing win. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, it was a convincing win. And then um, almost immediately, the D.C. Council started mobilizing to overturn this thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which was amazing. And, and they did. Yeah. Yeah, and they overturned it. And they overturned it. So, you know, this was a really tough issue uh, for a lot of people. Uh, because we here on the show, speaking for myself and for Bill, we're, we're progressives. We want to see this, this wage happen. Uh, but at the same time, everybody I know who works in the restaurant business, who either owns or manages. Uh, we work with someone who uh, works here in the studio who is a waitress, uh, and sh- she hated the idea. She loved the tip-based system. And the restaurant industry seemed to hate the idea. Well, the thing of it was that a lot of restaurants thought that this is basically going to put them out of business. I mean, if you think about the amount of money they will have to pay, um, you know, additional money they'll have to pay for labor. It is a quite significant amount. So how do you deal with that? You maybe have to increase your prices. You, 
Um, you know, a lot of places were talking about, let's get rid of tipping altogether and have some sort of service fee, which we don't have to give to the servers or bartenders or tipped workers, you know? Uh, so, we'll so, uh, so yeah. And there so there are a lot of arguments that in the end, actually maybe these tipped workers wouldn't get paid as much, um, that maybe it would put a lot of places out of business that they wouldn't be able to hire as many people. Um, you know, and, and we don't really know exactly how it would have played out, but there's a lot of bickering on both sides. So my issue, um, with it and in reporting this um yeah i've talked to about 160 tip workers and only a small handful of this um said that they support it but that doesn't necessarily mean those people aren't out there intimidated or whatever um but the thing that i i could never wrap my head around and why i don't think this is the perfect solution this industry needs a significant amount of reform but this group that came in they said you know we want to help low-income earners in this industry who are uh, minorities primarily. And if that were true, Initiative 77 would have in some way helped the people in the back of the house in the kitchen because they have a ceiling on their income, right? They can't un- earn this unlimited amount of money. Um, and w- are they ever going to get a raise if you're paying the front of house who already makes more money, more money? Yeah. L- l- let me ask you this, <laughs> because one of the big arguments was, oh, if this happens, we're going to have to shut our restaurants down. Restaurants won't open, blah, blah, blah. There have been multiple cities that have passed something similar to Initiative 77. They they started paying their tipped workers more. <laughs> well, I mean, you look at Seattle. I can't think of anybody that really, <laughs> like, I don't think anybody's really suffering from it. I, I mean, it's hard to say, right, what what place doesn't open because of that. Or, fair. You know, That's it, fair. Or how much bigger or more growth there might be different um, sure. so i don't it, it is hard to say but you look at like seattle where they're raising the um minimum wage shift tipped minimum wage of 15 dollars mm. an hour which is a lot um i mean i was there over the summer and it's booming there are tons of new restaurants and it's a very lively scene that's getting a lot of national attention yeah. too so you know that that's yeah. that's true What's interesting is some of the states, there's seven states that currently um, don't have this tip credit system in place. And a, a lot of them, like this, it hasn't been a, in place for 30 years. Right. Um, so they're not trying to kind of retrofit the system with yeah. this new policy. That It's already kind of been there and they've built their businesses over time. But the places that opened here in the last five years, they opened, you know, understanding that, you know, this is how labor works in the city. Yeah. And so they would have to go through a, a tremendous amount of change, which... I don't. I don't actually think it would be this doomsday. Every restaurant would close. I think there'd be some um, tightening and shrinking. Um, but I do worry about um, job cuts. Yeah. Not not restaurant closures, but job cuts, especially the people like the support staff, the bussers and the barbacks. Um, I could see a restaurant owner eliminating those jobs and just asking the server to do more. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I could I could certainly see that for sure. You know, I, for me, what it comes down to is like. I think we just, like, we don't want to pay what we should be paying for, like, a nice night out, right? Like, we want to pay as little as possible. As a consumer, we want to pay as little as possible. And I think that the hard part is for restaurants to say, hey, you've been paying this much for this long. Well, things change. We want to pay our workers a living wage. We want to make sure that everybody's getting, you know, their fair cut. We want to make sure everybody feels like they're taken care of. And that means that your check is going to be whatever. 
$10 higher than you thought it was going to be, $20 higher than whatever. I, I'd pay that for every time I go out to eat to know that everybody there was take, well taken care of. I mean, you say that, but I would also say probably one of the number one things people complain about to us as food writers is how expensive everything sure. is. And, oh, my God, That's what I'm saying, this taco's $5. Oh, my God, this cocktail's like $14. And, you know, in a lot of cases, um, they're not even really making that much money off of it. I but that's what the cost of labor and ingredients, yeah. especially for quality, yeah. really requires. It's, it's a mental thing, though, because yeah. I read a study that, that showed that, I mean, you still – you either pay higher prices or you pay a lower price and then you tip and it ends up being pretty close. But just like the, the yeah. actual the obligation, you know, the is it's just changes people's minds. It's right. fascinating. If you get a bill for a hundred dollars in your mind, that's, you know, it's a hundred dollars for dinner. Right. But like if you're paying what you should pay and you put, you know, gratuity and all that, you know, it's. Would you rather pay the hundred dollars and then twenty dollars on top of it or just one hundred twenty dollars? That's all. That's literally it. It's fascinating. Like psychology is fascinating. That's nuts to me. Yeah, it's a mind game. Yeah, it totally is. Okay, so uh, I, I want to come back to the Me Too movement just very quickly. Um, is there any sort of redemption for Mike Isabella uh, and any of these other people who have been uh, have been accused of this stuff? I just want to. Mm-hmm. I looked. Uh, Towards the end of the year, Mike Isabella put up an Instagram post, which I'm sure you both have seen, of a wolf baring its teeth, say, saying the comeback is always greater than the setback. So, will he be coming back? I don't think anytime very soon. I mean, uh, you know, I think there are certainly things, that, you know, there's a certain camp of people who say these this behavior is unforgivable no comeback whatsoever. I think there is still a large group of people who would say, you know, if you do the right things, you know, get help, make the right apologies, take the right actions, uh, you know, atone for your actions. Sure. Um, that, you know, there should be some kind of path for you to have a career in this industry. I mean, this is an industry that also famously gives people second chances, whether they're um, you know, convicts or whatever other troubles they've had in their life, that the restaurant industry is a place where everyone is welcome. Yeah. So, you know, is, should that be the case here? I don't I don't know what the answer is. I think he's going to swing for it. I don't think it'll be in D.C. I think he's getting, getting out of Dodge. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably what will happen. And then you have to wonder if he ever actually even learned anything. Uh, if he doesn't have to pay... You know, I mean, look, he's paid a very big price for it. I don't want to say he's not paying, but like, if he's able to still go and open restaurants, even if it's somewhere else, we'll just have to see. Okay, let's talk about positive stuff. Let's talk about positive <laughs> stuff. 2019 is here. Uh, dining trends. I oh, want to talk dining about trends. dining trends. I always love this. Just to, <laughs> like for you to, we're gonna put you on tape. We're gonna hold you to this. Oh what gosh. do you see coming in 2019? Uh, that that diners will be uh, seeing more of. Oh well, the, okay, the food hall trend that's still that's very still much thing. on the rise. Yeah. Um, uh, Middle Eastern flavors, I think we're seeing a lot of those. I'm just kind of going off the top of my head here. Sure, no, so. that's, I think that's great. <laughs> um, a lot of communal kind of dining. Mm-hmm. 
Have we reached peak Pokeball? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. oh, it's, it's over. It's like over it's and done over. with, right? Yeah, yeah, we're done with that. Okay, that bubble right, right. is about to burst. Yeah, so. it's so, boy. Yeah, hopefully. Fast Casual will continue to be, I think, the fastest growing segment um, in terms of dining, um, especially as we see what ha- kind of happens with labor. Um, yeah. That's a, a different setup. But um, I think just like higher quality fast casual experiences, um, a lot of data-driven um, type stuff. Um, the, these places are kind of towing the line between like what's too much information to just enough information to make you feel like you've had a really personalized experience. Yeah. Mm. Um, that that sector continues to fascinate me. I think the cuisine that had the biggest year in 2018 in DC was Indian food. We've mm-hmm. gotten a whole just rush of Indian restaurants, which is great. And there's still there's a couple more planned on the horizon for 2019. Um, so a lot with like with Middle Eastern flavors, with Indian flavors, I just think that um, I don't know, like maybe this like New America thing that like everyone's been obsessed with for the last couple of years is maybe starting to take a, a little bit of a backseat to some kind of more exciting cuisines. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, one final one final thing, uh, because I know you always talk about the really expensive cocktails here in Washington D.C. <laughs> Have you been to the Trump Hotel and had one of their $26 gin and tonics or whatever. I mean, I'm not kidding, by the way. They charge like $25. <laughs> they're, they're even more expensive every time you go, I feel like. Oh, man. But, you know, okay, I've been there a few times. Okay. More to just check out the scenery totally. and, and people watch. Doing your job. You're doing your job. <laughs> doing I get my it. job. I get it. It's not a special bar. You know, it's not like they're doing really cool uh, cocktails that are worth $25. They're just charging a lot for really basic shit. Yeah, or that's it. Say really basic well, you just stuff. did. Okay, it's okay. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but, that, but that's it. That's it, right? That's all they're doing. What yeah. was that drink they made you when you said your dog died or whatever? Uh, we So we did this little experiment where we, I went to the, this different bars okay. with different scenarios oh. and had them <laughs> make me a drink. Yes. So one of them was um, I just got dumped. I went with my husband, actually, which was really <laughs> hilarious. This is why we're done. We're already married. <laughs> and the bartender was like, oh, you're such a good friend to my husband. <laughs> uh, that, and then we, I did one where I said, my dog died. I don't have a dog. But <laughs> and then I and then the last one was I went to the Trump Hotel and I said, I, I just got fired. Uh, you know, bartender's choice. What can you make me? And uh they made me a, a, a sugar rimmed lemon drop <laughs> <laughs> and charged me nineteen dollars for it. Yes, <laughs> like that's just what I want if I just got fired. Wow. A nineteen dollar lemon drop. That's a little toned up. That's a little toned up, but shouldn't come as a surprise. Okay, all right, Laura Hayes, thank you so much for joining us. Jessica Sedman, thank you so much. I'm so glad we finally made this happen. Please come back soon. This was so much fun. Thanks. And thank you so much for being here during the holiday week. We appreciate you tuning in. We've got more holiday programming all throughout the week. Thanks for uh, joining us. Stay tuned. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.